Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name's Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Soto Grande, Spain. And I'm bringing you these podcasts. The aim is very clear to educate, to entertain and to energise the tennis community. Welcome to the next podcast. Welcome to episode 90 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Ollie Golding on the show. Ollie Golding was a child superstar on the stage as an actor, as well as on the tennis court, which saw him rise to the stardom of being the US Open junior champion. And then at the age of 19 was already 320 in the world ATP. And then he disappeared. (laughs) He disappeared away from the tennis world without a whole lot said about it. Three years later, he appeared again, won a tournament, made final of another tournament on the professional tour. And we thought, okay, now maybe now he will rise to the top and live to the potential that we all see in him. And then he disappeared again. (laughs) And what we're going to find out in this podcast is where he disappeared to, why he disappeared, what was going on behind the scenes, all of his thoughts, everything to do with tennis. It's a brilliant listen. He's, he's a very articulate young man. And I know that you guys are going to really enjoy the show. So I'm going to pass you over to Ollie Golding. So Ollie Golding, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm not bad, thanks, Dan. Yourself? Very well, thank you. And thank you for joining us. And Ollie, normally on these podcasts, we go right back to the start, which we will get to. But I think in the tennis world, people have probably been wondering for quite a while now what happened to Ollie Golding. So so give us a little update. What's been going on the last three or four years? Um, well, yeah, I guess I uh, started working for a bank about oh, almost three years ago now. Um, and, and that's kind of what I've been doing since. Uh, yeah, really enjoying it at the moment. Obviously, being confined to the, the confines of my living room for the last, uh, well, God, about 10 months now. So that's that's been a bit of a change. But yeah. And nothing tennis at all? Uh, not really, no. I mean, I play a little bit of, of, of NCL over the summer, but that's about the extent of it now. And if we go back then, to, because I know that, I guess your life's been filled with almost tennis or something else. There's been choices all the way through. And if we go back to the very start, I believe that Vauxhall Motors picked you up age two for some kind of advert. So the acting almost took over before the tennis. Yeah, I mean, I'm not actually sure how that kind of came about in the first place, to be to be honest. Um, I guess my my mum was was always had a background in tennis, not not so much in acting. So yeah, I'm not really sure how that kind of came to fruition. But that was something that was kind of always in in tandem with the tennis for for the best sort of uh, yeah first first ten years of my life or so. Um, and so yeah, that was 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 pretty fun. So were you a cute baby? Um. I, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to say that about myself, but um, yeah, I certainly, I guess, I had a, a big personality, so uh, that, that that helped. <laughs> and and you and you mentioned your mom, who I know is still, I believe, involved in tennis. So was she the reason that you got into tennis in, at the start? Yeah, um, she was coaching at a club called the Vanderbilt, which uh, used to be where Westfields is in in London, um, and she was sort of running the junior program there. 
um, as, as soon as I could walk, really, I was sort of hanging around, uh, hanging around the camps and the after school stuff and just sort of joined them from there. And and how soon was it before we knew that you were any good? Well, I guess, yeah, I sort of took the normal pathway, played, I think it was short tennis back back in back in those days. Um, I don't think red and orange and green were, were around then, but I sort of started playing those sort of, uh, yeah, sort of under eight, under nine stuff around Middlesex. And then, uh, yeah, I guess started playing some, some more of the national stuff as I, as I got older, I think. Uh, I guess I'd, I'd been around it from from such a young age that I kind of I don't know whether it's sort of nature or nurture, but I was obviously you know fairly good I guess for, for for my age, and it sort of took off from there. Yeah, because I was I was coaching Lloyd Glasspool at that time, who was obviously your he's your age, but I think you were you were one of the names I didn't see as much. So was that because I mean it might have just been a kind of geographical thing, but was it? that you weren't playing as much in the 12s, 13s, 14s, or have I got that completely wrong? I think I was playing quite a bit. I was never kind of one of the, the, the top in the country at that age. I don't know. I was quite small for my age up until I was sort of about 14, 15 when I had a big growth spurt. Um, so I guess, yeah, I was always playing those sort of clay court tournaments and nationals and stuff like that. I was just never really sort of fighting at the end of them. Um, I guess my birthday was, was fairly late in the year as well. And so I was a, a little bit of a late, late developer in that regard. So... So yeah, I was always sort of there or thereabouts, but I was never in the in the top few. And how much do you think that makes a difference? You've you've mentioned that like the the birth date. So like my son plays tennis actually, and he's he's November thirtieth, and I guess I'm starting to see that, that a little bit. Do you have an opinion on that? Does it hold kids back? Do you think? Uh, I, th- I think it works both ways. I think where you have to be careful is from a sort of, I guess, talent I- I- identification point of view that you're not always choosing the person who's sort of January the 1st because they're winning everything just because they're, you know, a year older, which at, at that age makes, you know, can make a huge difference. I think on the flip side, it-, it makes you have to work harder for everything. So when you do kind of catch up in that sort of development phase, you suddenly you're used to having to work that little bit harder and fight fight a little bit harder for, for your wins and stuff. So it- I think, it- yeah, it's sort of, Double-edged sword, really. Yeah, because if we go like in and around your age, I think Broads, Liam Brody is January, Evan Hoyt's January, Luke Bambridge is January, possibly O'Mara as well. So, so it kind of a, a, around. It, it does seem like there is quite a few Januaries that seem to come through as well. Yeah, I mean, my year '93, you had uh, George, George Morgan, um, Bettles, and I think they were all sort of yeah early in January, and then. Yeah, the the year after and, and the year after that with with Kedders and um, yeah Evan, like you said, I think they're all kind of towards the beginning of the year, and that did seem to be a bit of a trend. Yeah. Um, but I guess yeah, there's always going to be some outliers in there. And when you see all of those guys now still playing, so obviously George isn't, but when you when you see Lloyd still playing, when you see you know Bambridge, Edmund, Liam, does that make you feel like you should be there or have you completely moved away from that now to be honest yeah I think I've I've kind of moved away from that I've I've never even when I was playing I wasn't like a, a massive follower of tennis I, I wouldn't say I always kind of had other things on the go which you know yeah. I guess you know can be a good thing or, or, or a bad thing um but I, I, yeah to, to, to be brutally honest it's not something that I follow massively and think oh you know I, I kind of yeah. could have been there or I could have been you know yeah, playing whatever tournament. I just, I guess now, kind of my my priorities and my goals have, have changed a little bit, and I'm sort of yeah trying to work work towards what what I have in mind. And when you were growing up, you've got the tennis. How, how 
I, I think it was maybe Junior Wimbledon. I put BBC on and you were maybe playing a match that they showed at Junior Wimbledon. And obviously the narrative to a commentator, a young British kid coming up, it was quite a, a nice thing to jump on a little bit what I'm doing with the podcast here around the acting. But was that a serious thing? Was that something you did a lot? The little bit of research seems like you were in a lot of movies and West End and it seemed to be quite a big part of your life as well. Yeah, it was it was quite a big part of my life. I get I guess it was never something that I really thought was ever going to be a career. It was, you know, more something that kind of went alongside the tennis. I think the tennis yeah. was, was was definitely sort of the more the more dominant activity um, when I was growing up. And uh, yeah, it, it was it it kind of always felt like it was going to be a phase that I was going to end up sort of growing out of, even though I was I guess fairly fairly successful at it. Um, and, and I think there's some, some definite elements of it that, that help with my tennis development as well. Sort of, I wasn't scared of, of playing in front of big crowds, whereas maybe that might have been something that was new to a lot of guys who were, yep. you know, 14, 15, 16 playing junior Wimbledon or something. And you're suddenly playing in front of a couple of thousand people. I'd kind of been in a, in a situation similar to that, I guess. And, and so that definitely helped. So for the listeners on the West End, who there'll be a lot of listeners love to go on the West End. Give us give us some of your experiences on the West End. Uh, I was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which was probably the biggest, uh, the biggest one. Um, I was also in, yes, Scrooge, which I think was in the Palladium as well. Um, and then another play called Brand, which was with uh, Ralph Fiennes. So I guess, yeah, that, that, those were the, the three main ones. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, what year were you in that? Oh, you're, you're, oh, yes. you're testing you're testing my uh, my knowledge here. The I reason I ask, was... Ollie, you know, the reason I ask was Wimbledon 2004. I at Wimbledon is, as I'm sure you'll know, but when you play Wimbledon, you actually get given tickets to go to any West End show. And I actually took my girlfriend, which is now my wife, to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in 2004. <laughs> so I'm just trying to connect the dots. It would have been, would have been very ironic if you were actually in the 2004 show. There's a fair chance it was probably around that sort of period because um, I would have been, yeah, 11, I guess, at the time. So, yeah, I, I think it was it was relatively soon after it started. But, I, I, yeah, I'd have, to, I'd have to dig out the old programs <laughs> to get the dates. But I mean, it was probably around that sort of time, actually. Ollie, moving moving on I guess to to your tennis and if we we talk about you weren't just an okay tennis player you know you ended up I think your last year juniors I think if memory serves me right you were quarter finalist in French Open juniors and obviously you then uh, the, the much publicized winning of US Open how did that change your world and and what and, and I guess exp- Talk, talk to the listeners a little bit about what that experience was like and then what it meant to your life after that. I think it, it definitely changed things. There was a, a massive sort of marked ramp up in, in expectations, which I guess I'd, I'd done fairly well through juniors before that. I'd, I think I made yeah, semis of Wimbledon the year before. So I'd always kind of been on the radar, but definitely having that kind of, which was sort of one good week in isolation, to be honest, because I hadn't had a great summer before that. Um, definitely kind of yeah, ramped up the pressure and suddenly put my name on the map maybe in, in circles where, where there wasn't you know, previously there. I think it, it maybe didn't help so much that the last person to win it, a British person to win it before me was, was a certain Andy Murray yeah. about 10 years before that. So I think there was sort of a, a, 
an expectation and that I just kind of follow in his footsteps. Um, so I definitely, yeah, sort of felt that in terms of the actual week itself, it, it was a little bit strange because there was um, really bad weather that year. I think there was the tail end of a, a hurricane or something that hit the tournament. So we ended up just sort of sitting in a hotel for like three or four days and played the first couple of rounds off site somewhere in, in upstate New York in a, an indoor tennis center, which was all a bit bizarre. So I sort of ended up playing, I think there were like five matches in three days maybe to get to the semis and it just all became a bit of a blur and suddenly I was yeah, sort of in the semifinals and I actually played George in the, in, in the semis and played a really good match and then sort of, yeah, before I know it, I was sort of waking up in, in the final and um, yeah, obviously an amazing experience and, and one that sort of, yeah, gave me a, a very good platform to, to push on push on from, but it, but it also kind of, yeah, brought with it elements of, of expectation that probably weren't there before. And what would you, up until that point, because also you were number two in the world, I believe, in juniors. So up until that point, why do you think you had been so successful? I, I don't know, really. I mean, I, I've never been particularly successful up, up until about sort of 14, 15. And I think, I, as I mentioned before, I had sort of quite a big, growth spurt and all of a sudden my game sort of started to, to, to come together I never had a particularly great serve and suddenly I'd grown a lot so my serve improved and it just kind of all sort of started to fall into place uh, a little bit and and suddenly you know those those guys who I'd been sort of not you know slightly behind I guess I sort of suddenly overtook I think I ended up number one in in sort of under 18 juniors for ITF rankings at like 15 or 16 when probably a year or two before that I was maybe five or six in the country in my own age group um so there was a, a big sort of sudden improvement there I, I don't really know what the what the trigger for what, what was for that to be honest um but yeah the, the, the culmination of that I guess was was the US which yeah was it was a weird feeling when I won it because it was almost like a, a sense of relief on that day of the final rather than actually kind of being jubilant that that, yeah. that kind of you know about having a you know a fantastic week it was almost more yeah just I sort of sat in, in the hotel room but by myself in the, in the evening it was just like almost like a, a weight off my shoulders in a, in a weird sort of way but yeah and a couple of months later, George Morgan, who you mentioned, I, I believe then won Orange Ball as well. So we're talking about 93 Bonds, two of the best players in the world. Yet two years later, you've both stopped playing tennis. Is that why? Why, why would that be the case? That's a difficult one, really. I mean, I'm sure for George, his, his reasons are, are very different to mine. Um, I, you know, I'd always been pretty close to, to George growing up. We'd gone away together on, on a lot of trips and, and got on pretty well. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, it's a very difficult question to answer, kind of. Uh, and I probably don't think the two are linked in any sort of way, I guess, from from my own sort of personal journey. The, the, the seeds of that, if you like, were, had already kind of already there I think those sort of doubts as to whether that, that, that this was definitely the kind of career that I wanted had come before US Open I mean I, like as I mentioned hadn't had a great summer and, and actually weirdly before US Open didn't do much training at all kind of went there on the back of a couple of weeks of, of, of not doing much and sort of was toying in my head between sort of going to university or, or making a you know a, a proper go of it um, and maybe that's partly why I did well at US because I suddenly had a lot less expectation from from my own kind of side and and uh, and so yeah that that those kind of the, the, those those doubts were always sort of there and I think once 
US Open happened, suddenly it was like, well, okay, you know, maybe we're going to definitely have to give this go. <laughs> um, and, and as I said, sort of, the, you know, the expectation went up alongside that. And then, yeah, uh, kind of things happened from there. When you say the doubts, the doubts that your level was good enough or the doubts that you were able to live the life required to be a top tennis player? I think more the latter. Um, I, I guess particularly the first time I played, I, I did kind of have, I, I don't know whether it was just a, a, a valid doubt in my own ability or or a little bit of imposter syndrome, but I never really believed I was that good. I maybe didn't give that perception on, on the court, but it's certainly in my own head, when I think back, I kind of never fully believed in my own ability. And I think I only sort of realized, I guess, how good I was, was the second time I, I kind of came back and, and played a few tournaments. Um, but I think I kind of always knew that I wasn't sure whether whether tennis was for me, whether that was the, the lifestyle that, that I wanted. I never particularly felt like I was missing out on anything, but I guess the, the stability of kind of having a normal life was something which I, I always kind of really valued and wanted. And it's just something that's not really possible with tennis. I, I think I always kind of grew up doing something, being under some, not necessarily a microscope, but, you know, with, with the acting and then the tennis, I'd, I'd had a, a lot, I'd, I'd lived a lot um as a young kid and just kind of yeah almost in a way wanted a a sort of a quote normal life is it but if we take you were like you were 320 in the world at 1920 so you were you were on track to being a top 100 player you know and I think I, I guess to dig into it a little bit more was was someone not telling you that was someone not feeding you that belief you know because if i if we think now if i have someone at the academy who's 19 and 320 in the world who's just won the us open i'm telling you i'm i'm making them feel like a hundred million dollars when they go out on the, on the tennis court you know do you, do you feel like you weren't getting the right advice or you didn't have the right belief systems coming from beneath you then not, not at all. I mean, I, yeah, completely on the contrary, really. I, I think a lot of people, you know, definitely gave me the, the belief that the resources were, you know, absolutely there. The, the LTA were amazing from that point of view and, and, and gave me, you know, what I wanted. I think one of the trickiest things about doing quite well as a junior is, is you do sort of get these resources thrown at you. And sometimes that gets perceived when you turn up at a futures with a, a coach and a and a fitness trainer, I think that puts a target on your back to a certain to a certain extent when you've got guys who are sort of you know scrapping around and struggling to find the money to get to the next tournament, and you're turning up with a with a coach and a and a fitness trainer or a physio or something. It, I think that it isn't great necessarily from an image point of view in terms of making them want to beat you because you know instantly you step on the court and they've probably got that little bit of of, of added desire. Um, but yeah, I, I've. I think any doubts that I had were kind of in my own head. I don't think they were necessarily planted there by by anyone else. And, you know, as I said, I think the, the resources that I was given was, yeah, I mean, I guess more, more than enough to, to support me on that journey. So do you, would you say that you didn't have a real kind of true passion for the sport? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think I've always been massively competitive at what, whatever I do, whether that's playing, you know, Monopoly or football or, or anything. I've always had a, a real kind of urge to win. And I think that maybe could, could be confused at times for, for an actual passion for, for tennis itself, because I think I was very passionate when I played, but I don't think, you know, that uh, I've ever been 
massively into to tennis if that makes sense I mean when I, when I kind of stopped playing I it wasn't that I consciously switched off from it it's just I guess not something that I'm massively interested in yeah and if you were to go back to that moment you've won the US Open is there anything that you would do different um that's a difficult one I've not, I've not really thought about that before I think just to be a little bit more patient with myself is probably the the, the biggest thing I think I was kind of that, that that sort of age group is the first one that's really struggling and I'm talking not necessarily just in British terms but but in in a sort of global sense I think that's the first age group that's kind of struggled to really break through quickly I mean you look at I guess team is probably the best example he's just the same age as me um and you know really only now as he proper hit the the you know the the heights i would say of sort of being consistently in the top 10 and you know and he's what 27 years old so i think you know it, it takes a lot longer to break through now and that maybe hadn't been the case in the years before me when you had people like tomich come on the scene very young yeah. and so i think i would yeah have kind of been a little less rushed and put a little less pressure on myself i guess to to yeah, break through, you know, pretty, pretty quickly and, and sort of be a little bit more accepting that, that it's a long journey and it's going to take time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you make, Ollie, you know, and I think that the game is ever changing with regards to that. You know, if we like exactly what you say, if you go back, I think it was Donald Young, maybe hadn't come much before that. There, there was, there was the 17, 18 year olds that were coming through, which don't seem to be coming through anymore. What's your almost outside of you of that now you know and almost you're coming from a different lens because it's not your your major interest but I'm sure you've still got an opinion on it yeah I, I think the biggest thing from from that point is for slightly younger kids I mean you, you see a lot of the kind of kids who are sort of starting out on that journey at, at a younger age at sort of 12 13 14 and I did a bit of work when I first stopped playing with with some sort of kids of that sort of age and I think, you know, that you do have to keep in mind that this is a long, long, hard slog and, you know, you want to be at your peak when you're, you're 27, 28. And, and that kind of means being at your peak mentally as well. And if you're burnt out because you've been, you know, and this is not to say you don't have to work hard for it all the time, you, you know, you absolutely do, but I think you do have to be smart and say, look, you know, I, I need to become a, a well-rounded person. I need to have other things going on at, you know, that there, there, there needs to be, yeah, some kind of balance for me to to ensure that you kind of have that longevity that you need to succeed because it's yeah. not going to be an overnight thing where you're suddenly, you know, winning Grand Slams at 18, 19, you know, or, or even, you know, making top 100. Um, so, you know, I think there has to be a, yeah, a concerted effort to, to pace yourself. And I think the American Uni route is is the, the perfect example of, of, of how that can sort of, yeah, give you that. If we talk about we've we've touched on your mum being a tennis coach, how how involved was she in your in your tennis growing up, and I guess the positives, the the potential negatives, the 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 impact that she had. Yeah, she obviously she was the the kind of main main driver behind behind my tennis, um, purely from a kind of yeah chance point of view as well. That you know I I, I think. I don't know whether I've always fully believed in in talent as such. I think I always kind of had a, a very good sort of ball strike and was perceived to be very talented. But my belief is that probably came from from hitting thousands of balls as, as a kid um, and just kind of, yeah, constantly honing that just because I was around it. I don't think, you know, it was a conscious effort to go out and stand there for five hours. I was just constantly kind of sort of, yeah, as, as a kid, when you're hanging around at your mum's place of work, you just sort of join in. 
and so she was always very involved I think she was a very she's a very very good coach at, at kind of you know teaching the, the fundamentals of the game um and I think where it gets tricky is is later on and you know she invested as much time energy money more than than even I did probably into my tennis and and so she, you know she's got a, a vested interest in that a vested interest in that and I think it, it, it then becomes a little bit tricky later on when she kind of has to had to sort of relinquish control a little bit and, and maybe didn't know the ins and outs of the, the top level of the game and, and I guess from, from that point of view it was sort of hard to let go for her I think um, but yeah I think so it's sort of a double-edged sword really I wouldn't have probably got to that level w- without her involvement but at the same time you know it, it does make things trickier later on. So did you guys come to a bit of a head with that was that a difficult difficult relationship at any point? Yeah, there was there was certainly some difficult times. I mean, I was a a pretty headstrong teenager as well. And when you throw that into the mix with with the pressure of kind of tennis, yeah. it, you know, it's always going to be a, a difficult relationship. And you know, I kind of there's elements of that where I think I handled it very well for someone of my age. There's elements where I think I could have done better. I think you know the, the LTA sort of at the, at the time who were, who were helping me quite a lot you know, maybe could have handled things a, a little bit better and seen the human side of things a little bit more that, you know, ultimately, you know, I think she, she, she obviously came from a position of, of caring and, and, and rightly so. And, and yeah, it's just a, it's a difficult situation, I think, for, for everyone. But And wasn't there, I, I always, whenever I think of your mum, I always think of an agent. Is it Cindy? And was she, was she your agent from quite an early age as well? Uh, she wasn't my my actual agent and, until yeah. sort of yeah a little bit later on. I mean, it's a pure kind of chance meeting. So my mum was sort of coaching her son as well, and and she'd worked um, in that sort of capacity in the music industry before, and and wasn't really doing much. So she sort of yeah just sort of started to help me, I guess, as as things went along, got a little bit more involved, and then did become my agent towards the end. Yeah. And what's your take on, because we just had an agent on, actually, we just had John Morris on last week. And I challenged him a little bit on agents signing players early and whether it's really needed. What what age were you when you signed up to to an agent? I was, uh, I don't know the exact age, but I was pretty young. Um, I I signed with with Octagon, who, uh, yeah, took took me on at a a fairly young age. Um, Being completely honest I don't think it's a massively kind of ethical thing to to sign lots of kids at at, at that age I think it kind of probably puts unnecessary pressure on on yeah on the situations that that that, you know his ultimately kids find themselves in um and you know I guess from a business model point of view it works quite well for them so that and, and it's not I guess I, I think probably if you look at something like football, I think it's a lot better regulated. It's easier to regulate because you've got sort of clubs involved as well. Um, but but that that yeah, I'm 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 not sure where I kind of sit on that one. I think it's a yeah, it's a kind of sort of grey area that yeah, I'm, I'm not too sold on. Yeah, well, I'm I'm with you, Ollie, on it, and I was that was my challenge with John last week because it it, it certainly used to and I, I i can't speak with any authority now but it certainly used to be right let's sign all the best 12 13 year olds and maybe one of them that might make it you know and it's the, the more people you sign the more chance you, you you have of hitting hitting the hitting the jackpot but in doing so exactly what you say you're applying pressure you're applying expectation you're also losing 
your amateur status <laughs> so you're stopping people from yeah that was something I didn't know about and, and, and definitely my mum didn't know about at the time and, and probably was the difference well yeah I probably wouldn't have been eligible unless I'd maybe taken a year out or something I don't know the, the laws exactly that well but that was the biggest reason why I didn't didn't go down the American University route um, to, you know to, to be blunt and I think there's I think part of the problem is kind of the education of the parents and stuff I think it's it's you know very easy I mean my mum was sort of pretty clued into all that sort of stuff but I would imagine there's there's quite a few parents out there who aren't and yeah I, th I think you know it's it's very easy to kind of for the agents to sell the dream and say you know I'm, I'm gonna give little Jimmy a 10-year deal with Nike let's say or whatever and the parents all think oh you know fantastic my, my, my kid's gonna make it and stuff yeah I'll sign on the dotted line for sure and you know I, I don't think a lot of the time they necessarily know exactly what they're getting themselves in yeah. for but yeah yeah and i think also ollie i think we we're both parents and i think we can probably relate to this we all think our little jimmy is the outlier <laughs> you know yeah. it's like, you know it's like oh did you see how he rolled over there you know nobody nobody's child can ever roll over like that and and, and it's just, I guess, a message because we do have a lot of parents listening in. I'm sure you might have talented individuals as sons or daughters, but just be really careful when it comes to all of these things because in general, there's kind of a set almost routine that we see and rhythm to, to the tennis world, you know, and it's, it's, it's wrong to think that you're going to be this outlier who signs with an agent at 11, becomes a pro at 16, makes the first million by 18 and, and goes that route. You know, you have to be smart with the, with the moves. And I think you're a great example of that. You know, if people were putting money on you being a top under a player at 18, they probably would, you know, you would be the horse that they're going to back, but look at how, how things can change, you know, and, and how quickly they can change or look what's going on behind the scenes. Or like you said, the seed was already sown a little bit for you that, probably the life of tennis wasn't wasn't quite for you um so now taking you to age 20 which i believe is when you stopped why was that decision made was it made in an emotional way was it was it a difficult decision or did it just absolutely feel right at that time it absolutely felt right at that time and i, I think it, it came initially as to like okay i'm just going to take a break for a couple of weeks a month you know open-ended and just sort of see how i feel i wasn't in a great headspace mentally and, and i think even kind of this is not that long ago this is what 2014 i think um i, I don't think we're kind of we were sort of in the position there to to talk about things or certainly I, I wasn't willing to kind of talk about things that maybe I should have talked about to, to, to people and kind of have those conversations about how I was feeling and and so you know I, I definitely when I when I stopped playing was just feeling a lot better about myself and, and just kind of happier with my life in general and, and so from there it kind of sort of became a, a, a permanent decision um it, there wasn't sort of one moment where I realized, you know, this is not for me. As I said, the kind of the, those sort of seeds of doubt were there for a long time. And, and I had yep. spoken to to my coaches at, at the time, um, sort of, you know, and, and I think they kind of could, could sense that as well. Um, I think that the, the tricky part of it was for me as well, that kind of, you know, while I felt a kind of, you know, a pretty close connection with, with the coaches that I had sort of, I guess, from, from 18 to 20 when, when I stopped or 17 to 20 or whatever. 
they also did kind of work for the LTA. So I, I didn't want to completely open myself out because I also thought, oh, well, you know, if I do, in a way, if I do want to continue on this journey, I'm probably not not helping by saying I'm you're not helping myself by saying, well, I'm not 100% sold on this. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was kind of a, a tricky position. And I guess I should have, I think, yeah, probably been a little bit more proactive in, in sort of seeking help to have those conversations. Yep. Um, but, you know, you're, you're, you're young at the time and, and you don't necessarily understand a, a lot of these things, maybe as well as I understand them now. And, and so, yeah, I, I don't necessarily, well, I definitely don't have any regrets about kind of taking that decision. Um, but yeah, I kind of may, maybe regret not sort of opening out and having more sort of frank conversations with people. That's good advice for people. It sounds like um, the old relationship, let's just be friends. And then, yeah. you, then you never actually continue being friends, but it just, it softens the blow. It softens the blow on big decisions like that. No, absolutely. I think that kind of feeds, feeds well a, a little bit into kind of the second time that I played because it was almost that. It was kind of, I completely switched off from tennis you know had, had nothing to do with it didn't miss it at all it just almost stopped being a part of my life other than I was sort of working as a coach a little bit but it was kind of because I didn't really know what what else to do um and then I sort of actually played a little bit over one summer I think I played like county week and stuff and actually thought you know what I'm quite enjoying playing tennis here <laughs> again um and then sort of thought oh you know okay well, let's just kind of see what happened play a few tournaments and I guess for, for the level that of my tennis was at for me to kind of play a few tournaments and have some fun that that happened to be I guess kind of sort of a futures level ish um and then I kind of played the tournaments did a whole lot better than I expected but at the same time there was that stark realization that actually you know I, I can enjoy playing tennis and it doesn't have to be my career here and and I quickly or very quickly realized that the, the issues why I stopped the first time were still there. They weren't going to go away. I, I still wasn't okay. going to enjoy that life of kind of traveling 30 weeks a year and sort of being a bit of a nomad. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, sort of, yeah, pretty quickly realized that, yeah, while I can enjoy playing tennis, you know, it's still, it's definitely not going to be a career. Because you won two or three futures events when you came back, huh? Uh, I think I won one one and then got, got, got to the final as well straight away off the, the second second or third tournament. Yeah. So what was it? What was it that you didn't like? You've mentioned the travel, the, the weeks away, wanting to live a more normal life. Would were, were those the main drivers against it, rather than the actual the actual sport and the training and the the people in in the, in the game? Yeah, I always got on fairly well with with people in the game and, and never kind of, you know, I was always a bit kind of, yeah, I don't know, maybe aggressive is not the right word, but on the court I was, <laughs> it could be a little bit kind of, yeah, confrontational is probably the right way to put it. Um, but I think off the court, that's that's not really my personality at all. And I kind of did become a very different animal in, in that sort of competitive environment. And there's certain things that I look back on that I did on the court, which I'm not proud of at all. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, that those those kind of elements of of, of being away and, and just not having that stable life. I think you know, the, the second time I played, um, my son was was very young, and, and I remember it's weird kind of timing, but he he pretty much was like sort of starting to take his first steps as I was away playing that 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 tournament in Italy, and I, you know that those kind of things for me missing out on those is just yeah I, I couldn't really sort of put put a price on that and any success that I would have got through tennis just doesn't outweigh those those sort of 
yeah those, those sort of things for me so it was there's always I guess a trade-off you do with anything in life and 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 tennis wasn't a big enough didn't didn't offer enough kind of positives for me to to outweigh the the negatives I think you're so brave on making those decisions though Ollie because I think I think the reality is what you're feeling is probably what lots of people feel but they they aren't brave enough to admit it so they so they keep going along the journey <laughs> just because that's just that's just what they do and I think one thing that's really standing out a mile for me do I know Ollie Golding well? No, I don't. Did I see you quite a bit? I did from a bit of a kind of external view and, you know, coaching players that maybe played against you. And speaking to you today, it's very clear that Ollie Golding, the person, is very, very different to Ollie Golding, the tennis player. And it, and it almost, I'm just wondering as we're talking here, that almost the difference between the two couldn't quite, couldn't quite match up. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fair comment to make. I think, you know, I was kind of, yeah, like I said, on or I was a, a, a very different person to how I'm, at, how I'm off it. And I, I think I kind of, yeah, when I get put into competitive situations, that's just kind of kind of how I act. And I, and I think, you know, you, you have to be hard as nails to play professional sport and you have to have that, that yeah, you have to have all of those elements, you know, that, that they are required. And, and uh, you know, I think to, you know, you, to make it in tennis now you have to be physically an absolute beast mentally a beast and you have to be a, a bloody good tennis player as well and and so I think that kind of while I was guess able to sustain that on the court that that, that the, certainly the mental side starts to dwindle and I realized pretty quickly that if, if you're not fully you know 100% invested in this there's too many other people who are and, and no matter how well I hit the ball, you know, if, if I haven't got that kind of yeah, mental strength for what, for whatever reason, it, it's not going to happen. And so I guess, yeah, it was a, was a brave decision and it's certainly one that I'm kind of proud of making. I think I caught quite a bit of flack for it probably at the time. And there's probably still a lot of people who, who think it's maybe the, the wrong decision, but I kind of know from a personal point of view, how, I guess, how much happier I am in my life and stuff that I definitely made the, the right decision. And it wasn't too long before you became a daddy. So you've got you've got a little four year old. So and um, so how how's that experience been? Yeah, it's fantastic. Obviously, a lot of growing up to do. Um, but but he's he's absolutely brilliant. And uh, yeah, he's he hasn't picked up a tennis racket yet. He doesn't show much interest in it. He's got half decent genes for it. Obviously, Martha wasn't bad as well. Um, so who knows? I mean, it, from a selfish point of view, I don't really want to be t- sort of taking him to match plays or whatever on my Saturday evenings in, <laughs> in ten years' time. But you know, if he wants to go down that route, then. I won't stop him. And has, has Granny not got a pause on him yet? She's she's sort of trying. She's sowing the seeds. She bought him a, a racket for his birthday last year, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, I, I think inevitably he's going to start sort of showing interest at some point. Yeah, across that bridge where we come to. And how would that make you feel? Let's let's say he does. He's, he's he shows he's got a bit of a gift for it. He he's got a passion for it. He starts playing. He does stop. Want to start the natural? I'm going through it with my my son myself. It, it naturally does happen quite fast. You know how how do you think you would be about that? I, I try and keep him involved in as many different things for as long as possible. I think that that kind of helps not only as a person but also helps you as a tennis player. Um, you know, it's a bit daunting. I'm you know I'm not going to lie because I think you know I guess myself and obviously Marta we know how just how tough that journey is um and I'd be 
I, I guess, yeah, trying to make him aware of what he's getting himself into. And I think if he did decide to go down that route, it would probably help, uh, you know, having been through through that myself. Um, but yeah, it would, it, it would certainly be a, a daunting prospect because I know how kind of tough it is. And, you know, I, I'm not going to push him in, in any one direction. I'll let him kind of choose where he wants to go. But if I could choose where I wanted to go, probably tennis wouldn't be that. Not not so much from a selfish point of view, but just because I kind of, yeah, not know where it leads. And it, and it is a, a really tough, yeah, a tough sport. But if we take you now as someone who's working for Santander, um, doing well, you know, doing well for yourself. And, and I would imagine a lot of what you're taking into work on a daily basis and the skills that you have have come through your, through your tennis experience and tennis journey. Could you not view it as part of the experience of learning about life? You know, I think sometimes we can get caught up in thinking we only play tennis to be a Wimbledon champion or we only play tennis to do those things. Is that something you've reflected in a positive light on about your own playing career oh absolutely um i wouldn't change one moment of the experience that that i went through um i think it's you know massively useful in ways that i probably didn't realize at at that age i guess i was never perceived as being perhaps the hardest worker in tennis but when you put that into the context of you know you're in the top thousand in the world at something your dedication to the cause is whether you're perceived as being someone who works hard in tennis or or not is is still phenomenal and when you kind of transfer that into sort of the normal world as such you know that there's so many transferable skills a lot of them that you don't even realize that, that you have in terms of just your resilience your your ability to kind of be coached and take criticism obviously you know from a young age you're being told that this is wrong that's wrong you've got to change this you've got to change that on your forehand and, and stuff and I think that's one of the biggest things that I've noticed in 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 kind of working in a different world is that if you tell someone they're doing something wrong a little bit they they kind of almost like hang, hang on a minute what, so what, what are you trying to say whereas I think it's kind of instilled in certainly you know not just tennis players but in, in athletes that you're constantly almost looking for what you're doing wrong to to improve on it right. and so I guess yeah that's one of the biggest points but there are so many areas that kind of you know you know and, and, and skills that 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 tennis has given me and, and you know not just tennis but the life which which I potentially didn't like but sort of it sort of led for four or five years the, those skills that it's given me uh, I guess put you a long way ahead of you know your average person who's just sort of come out of university and are you competitive at work yeah I, I guess it's obviously a, a, lot, a lot more kind of watered down and, and, and I'm part of a team and, and stuff like that so it's, it's very different you're not so much of a of a lone wolf but you know that I think there's certainly times when you know like like in any job you think oh, I don't really want to do that today but and then you think well but you know that might you know get me ahead or that that might sort of make me look good and, and I think that's where I kind of yeah certainly draw, draw on that competitive side which I have. And what's next for you over the next few years? I don't know really um, I mean I'm, I'm massively enjoying where I am and, and what I'm doing and I just sort of started a new role over over lockdown which is is challenging um, because I think a, a lot of what you kind of learn in that sort of environment it's obviously a little less structured than tennis and you learn a lot just through being around people and having conversations in the office and and that doesn't really happen now you have to be a lot more kind of proactive in in setting up a zoom with someone or, or calling them and so from that point of view it's a, it's a little bit strange but I'm certainly yeah, very happy where I am and kind of yeah look, looking uh, looking at those next steps in certainly in the world I'm in very good. Well, the best of luck with it. And just before before we go, Ollie, before I move into the quick fire round, I'd love to get your 
your opinions on British tennis in terms of in terms of what you see from from afar now? That's a, it's a, it's a whole another topic. Uh, where to where do you start? Um, but I think you know. I guess the the obvious place to start is is I think probably the LTA and how they kind of support players on that journey. And, and you know, when I think back to kind of my own journey, they they were massively supportive of, of me and and through you know more than more than I could wish for in terms of resources. I think maybe where and this is you know this is a long time ago, so things are different back then. I think there, there's maybe a, a slight gap on the, the sort of human side that you know this is a kid, this is a kid at the end of the day, and I was still fairly young and stuff, and and maybe yeah, I could have been a bit more sensitive in that regard. I think you know we we are naturally disadvantaged in this country and that we don't have sun all year round and uh, you know I don't think that helps in terms of like growing up on clay and and just the sort of club culture in this country is, is a little bit different I would say and again that's probably a product of, of yeah the, the weather and stuff like that that you go to a club in Spain or France and the kids are just kind of hanging out there all day and they sort of dip in and out of the tennis whereas here it seems to be a little bit more right you've got your lesson from four to six and you go and you, you have that and you go home whereas I think it's a yeah I guess a maybe slightly healthier environment than in clubs and in other countries um, those are the sort of things that yeah stand out for me when you compare us to to other countries in tennis. So you're now the CEO of the LTA congratulations <laughs> you, you've been working at Santander for 15 years and you've now moved into into the CEO of the LTA, what are your two things that you're going to absolutely put down as your as your main philosophies and stamps? That's a very good question. Put your mum in charge. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> I'd fear for the board and the people who answer to her. Um, she's a hard taskmaster. It's it's hard not to put a kind of personal spin on it, and and I think kind of as someone who kind of didn't I guess in, enjoy tennis I would say try and uh, certainly the performance level get a bit more enjoyment out of it but that's a very like you know and, and, and find of ways to kind of foster a little bit more of a, a team spirit but uh, it's an individual sport at the end of the day so I, I don't kind of know how you would go about that um, I'm but not Ollie, asking this question very well am I? But... No no but Ollie that's that's I mean that's how the Spanish have done it for years you know the the Spanish hunting packs you know, you go to you go to tournaments around the world in in futures, in challenges, and you will have three, four, five, six, seven, eight, especially on the guys' side, players from the same academy. You know, from the same private academy, and it is done a little bit more like that. And 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 I think you the point you make, and I'm sure Ev, who I know you you're good friends with Evan Evan Hoyt. Who, who I coach wouldn't mind me saying this, the challenge that he found one of the, one of the challenges he found moving from futures to challenges was all of a sudden in challenges. He was traveling on his own. Whereas in futures, we often went as an academy in a group. So it was a bit more fun. <laughs> you know, there was a little game of football happening. There was cards and silly games happening in, at the dinner table that, that made the whole experience a better experience. So, you using your personal reason and experience, I think, is exactly what I want from from that discussion, actually. And I think that that point is a is a very relevant point. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, uh, you know, I, I think you kind of 
I, I never quite understood that, that. And it is, I guess, can be perceived a little bit as a British mentality sometimes in that you almost kind of want to... And sometimes, yeah, that there are players who, who don't want others to do well because they think that's going to make them do better. And I never kind of understood that mentality because, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's 100 spots in the top 100 and you're not all only fighting for one, you know. And, and I think there could have been... Yeah, maybe a little bit more of a sort of togetherness in that respect that, you know, more of us can can make it here. And But then at the same time, I think to succeed, if you look at the guys who are at the top, they have like an unquestionable single-mindedness about everything that they do. And so I, I maybe think that that's a, a naive way of looking at things a little bit, that you can have that mentality to succeed. Because if you look at the traits of the guys who are right at the top, yep. that's almost something that they don't have. So I, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm in two minds as to whether or not that would actually be a constructive thing. Although from a personal point of view, it probably maybe would have improved my tennis journey. I, I don't know whether that is actually something that work to, to get you to the top if that makes sense but is the job of a federation to produce a top five player in the world or is it to to, to try and produce 20 players in the top 200 in the world which naturally some of them will then rise and find their own ways to being superstars or to being journeymen that that have 10 years at 80 in the world to you know because I, 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 I would argue that that's the job of the federation it's not and and maybe it's it's almost been set up to to hand select ollie golding george morgan luke bambridge whoever it might be and say right we need to put a top 10 player in the world team around them to get them to top 10 rather than let's see if we can get these boys continuing to move together up to a certain point. And then a bit like what Dan Evans has then done over the last couple of years, he's then separated himself and, and gone his own way a little bit. Yeah, I think there's so many things that need to, to fall into place, so many stars that need to align for you to end up, you know, get getting to the... Be it, you know the top 10 or, or the top 20 and you know the LTA certainly can't be responsible for all of those I think like you say they, they've got to put together a, a kind of the best base platform that they can and, and whether that I think from their point you know like you say means hedging your bets a little bit on, on a broader pool of players I think that's probably a, a smarter strategy if you use myself for, uh, as an example I think they could have thrown they did throw you know and I'm extremely grateful for it they threw a lot of resources at me and and with, you know with the best will in, in the world that because of my kind of I guess mentality it, yeah it, I wouldn't say it turned out to be a waste but but in a way it did and and you know could they have distributed that better and I guess I'm throwing myself under the bus in a weird sort of way here but I think yeah that that, that they do I think that their kind of responsibility is to give people the tools and kind of see where it goes and if they can spread that a little bit better rather than concentrating on on a few people I think yeah maybe that that would help more but I guess their their, their remit as well is not just to create tennis players right it's to grow the game of tennis in this country and I guess that kind of goes hand in hand to a certain respect but yeah the, the, there is two sides to it. If you had less resource thrown at you do you think anything would have been different? No probably probably not I don't think that was kind of the the be all and all of the decisions that I made I think that, you know, yeah w whether or not I would have improved at a different rate it's, it's kind of very difficult to say but probably not I don't think it would have made a difference yeah I think I think where that question comes from Ollie I have an opinion that it is such an incredibly difficult sport that that you have to you have to be all in with the sport you know so 
Whereas I think a lot of players, and maybe you came under this umbrella, play because they're quite heavily funded to play. So then, so then they can, you, you're a bit of an exception that you've made that decision while still being funded. But I think what, what can happen is players get to a certain age and this goes back to my generation as much as yours. When funding is taken away, they then stop playing as well. Whereas, whereas in other countries, it's almost harder to play so, so they're making that decision and that decision's sticking a little bit stronger and maybe their purpose is a little bit stronger and their reason for playing is a little bit stronger that then in the end, they maybe squeeze that extra two, three, four percent out of themselves that maybe the funding structure in the UK stops. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it is such a hard sport that I think any support is is helpful I mean from from a personal point of view that the, the two weren't really interlinked as to, as to why I stopped I mean you know I, I always had yeah, very good resources at my disposal and actually before I stopped I did kind of choose to go my own way but that was more me trying to sort of find a way almost yeah desperately find a way to enjoy it and still sort of carry on because I wasn't happy I, I don't think that was it and, and you know that definitely turned out to be nothing to do with the, the resources that were being thrown at me it was just you know that that was kind of how I, how I was and how I felt about it and that, that wasn't really going to change um, we, we, we're naturally kind of a, a little bit fortunate as a, as a country and when I kind of compare my journey I guess to, to somebody like Marta's she she was not given any of those sort of resources and did she have to fight harder for it yeah she, she did and did that maybe is that maybe an advantage potentially in some ways because you know I, I was lucky to kind of be able to fall back into a, a comfortable life I would say and maybe if I was from another country that maybe wouldn't have been wouldn't have been an option so is there kind of that burning desire is that, that burning desire a little bit stronger in other countries probably yes but I'm not sure that's necessarily a product of the resources we have that we pay tennis I guess it's just the resources that we have as a country and the opportunities that we have as a yeah. country which maybe aren't open to other people so Marta is your girlfriend or wife yeah from Russia from Russia and what um, tell us about a little bit about her tennis journey then because you've mentioned her a couple of times um yeah well, she she was better than I was in the end uh, which I'll never live down uh, <laughs> she, she she got to about yeah, 115 I think was was her highest ranking WTA um and so she she stopped a couple of years after I did um but had yeah, a very different journey a lot more kind of yeah of, of her own doing as such rather than having kind of yeah other people involved it was a very kind of single-minded journey i think we'll have to get her on the podcast next to hear what she really thinks oh, about she won't she won't like me putting her out for that <laughs> <laughs> and does that give you the motivation to get back on the tour to beat her ranking at some point this could be a lifelong this is a lifelong thing that you're going to have to deal with ollie uh, i pick my i pick my battles <laughs> and that's not what i'm going to win at so i'll, I'll leave it there <laughs> and do you think we'll ever see you back in tennis in, in any form, any shape or form? I, I'd quite like to, I guess, use the experiences that I have one day and, and, and to try and, you know, give, give back. And, and I do try and do that sometimes, even now, of, of sort of hitting with, with kids who are sort of on that journey. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's a way of being able to use the experiences I have to, to try and help people. I think, you know, I, I have a, a pretty good experience of, of the game will be limited in terms of how long I lasted in it. I got to see quite a bit and I, you know, play grand slams and, and, and stuff like that. And 
and I got to see a lot of different systems of how tennis works in, in other countries and stuff. So I guess I have formed a, a sort of an, an opinion on that. And, uh, you know, if there's, if there's anywhere I can kind of give back in that respect, I think in the future, it would definitely be something that I would consider. But in terms of actually personally playing tennis, I think that, that book's definitely close. <laughs> well, Ollie Santander and Soto Tennis Academy, I see some serious brand alignment here, you know, so... <laughs> If you can get yourself up that chain a little bit higher, we'll maybe have a conversation about a partnership moving forward. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, very good, Ollie. I, I want to move into our quick fire round. As it says on the tin, forehand or backhand? Uh, backhand. Serve or return? Return. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. Andy or Jamie? Uh, Andy. Tennis or acting? Tennis. Three sets or five sets at slams? Three. One rule change that you would have in tennis? Get rid of the warm-up. Who should our next guest be? George, George Morgan. I reckon it'd be an interesting one. Well, if you can get in touch with him and let him know that he's been called, because especially, I, I think with that one as well, Ollie, I think... It would not to, not to just jump down the comparison route, but ultimately Britain had two top, top, top juniors there in the two. And you rightfully said when I brought him into the equation that, look, you can't comment on George and that they weren't related. You know, you've been ever so kind to share your insights and your thoughts and your journey. And I think it would be fantastic to, to get George on to do the same. So if you can send him a message and say, it's a, it's a, it's a, this, this podcast, the way it works, it's a knock-on effect. It's like once you've been called out, you need to let the next person know. And we just keep, we keep the, the train going. But thank you so much, Ollie, for coming on. And everyone will love listening to this. No, you too. Have a, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks, Ollie. A huge thank you to Ollie Golding for coming on the show. Yeah, what what a what a fantastic listen. Um, yeah, such an articulate young man. As I said at the start of the show, uh, I really did find it a fascinating conversation. And I guess my takeaways, as as ever, he had some serious talent in Ollie Golding. You know, he was a he was a serious tennis player. Timing of the ball, got the game, yet didn't have that burning desire. You know, didn't didn't have the absolute love for the sport, and because of that, there was a ceiling. and And I think the fact that he was able to recognise that, the fact that he was craving a more normalised life, and then he's gone and got that. And you have to tip your hat to him. And, and I think it one shows the difficulty of our sport. You know, I, I talk about it all the time with parents, with players. With, without that unconditional effort, that want, that desire, you will never quite reach your potential. No matter how pushy the parent is, because there'll come a point where the player ultimately has to drive it themselves. And, and I think we've seen that with Ollie. He basically fell into winning a junior Grand Slam. Uh, obviously working hard, but not by his own admission, not working as hard as he could. But the ability to then turn that into a profession 
that makes him a lot of money and sustains that over over a period of time is is another thing. And like I said, the second thing for me, I massively admire his bravery because I, I don't think many players are that honest with themselves. I think there's lots of players out there that probably are second-guessing themselves and don't quite have that level of passion that's required. And even if you don't have the level but you have the passion, you will find your way, whether that's in coaching, whether that's as an, as an agent, whether that's using tennis in, in some other way. Uh, but if you don't, it's not going to be the first thing that you, is going to drive you and be the vehicle that's going to take you through life. So, so yeah, some great messages there from Ollie, and a big, big thank you to Ollie. This is our last podcast of 2020, apart from our short little review of the year, which will be coming out tomorrow. Uh, but just want to say a big, big thank you to you all for all of your support the last eight, nine months that we've been running the podcast. Uh, I'm still seeing the ratings reviews come in, so please do keep them coming. It's it's spreading the, the podcast out there and all of these great messages out there, which we get so many positive messages from. So thank you for that and wish you all a very happy new year and moving into 2021 where... Yeah, let's hope that the world becomes a safer, healthier place that we can all get back to some form of normality in our lives. So thank you for listening. I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. If you're still listening, then you're one of our best listeners that you've made the way all the way through my outro. And because of that... Here's a little bonus clip of myself and Ollie speaking for a couple of minutes. This was after the podcast, but I think in a in a more relaxed, informal environment, it actually is a really nice clip that talks through some of the, the ways that myself and Ollie feel maybe about our own personalities in tennis and yeah, some of the reflections that we've had. So enjoy. Over to myself and Ollie. Yeah, and no, I think it's a very good point that you raise. I think about the, the, I've not really thought about it like that, but the kind of tennis player being a bit different from the person. I think it's, it's true. There's a lot of things I look back on now and I was like, oh my God, like what was I doing smashing all those rackets and sort of behaving like that? But yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting yeah, one. Yeah, no, it is. And, and, and I can I can relate quite a bit because I, I, I wasn't as good as you, but I definitely, you know, I stopped playing when I was, I mean, doubles were British number one and about 130 in the world. Because it just, it wasn't for me. The life wasn't for me. I just, I was sick of not having a toothbrush in a toothbrush holder. Sounds ridiculous, but I just was, you know, it was, and, you know, college tennis worked really well for me. And that's a reflection I've had that, you know, I guess I've gone on and set up my own academy and I, I like doing different things. And and me, me, the tennis player, I was quite angry and I was quite, I wasn't great to be around. And it, that, that, it wasn't me. It brought out the traits in me that I don't believe were me, and and I always felt that actually probably tennis wasn't quite, quite for me. College tennis was, you know, being part of a team and speaking to players, and you know, when I played college tennis, I didn't focus on my court. I was more on the other, the other team's court. That's that's always where my skills have lied. Whereas playing on the far court in Glasgow, David Lloyd wasn't, and me abusing the umpire 
that was that was very against actually what I was, you know. It sounds very yeah, very similar to myself in that respect. I think yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of parallels there, sort of with with what I felt. And uh, yeah, I think kind of yeah, when I think back to like the best moments to have when I was playing tennis, it's probably playing like county cup and stuff like that, as opposed to actually battling by yourself like you say even like winning futures or something it's just not mm. didn't didn't compare to me to to that kind of thing and yeah certainly yeah, the, the way I bathed probably wasn't <laughs> probably wasn't great and, and a lot of people kind of had a perception of that like you say you get judged as that's who you are but I, I like to think that I'm I guess yeah better person than the, <laughs> than the way that the way that I behave sometimes but yeah mm.